0: In verse 2, we are told that Abraham sees three men. The Lord Yahweh appears to Abraham in the form of three men, three messengers, three angels. Some have extrapolated some kind of uh, Trinitarian theophany here. Uh, Andre Rublev, uh, he painted this um, uh, painting that you guys have in front of you, which uh, is... Uh, a depiction of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, um, uh, the, the three visiting angels. Uh, but I, I don't think that this is what's, what's happening, but it is a possibility. I think it's more likely that one of the men was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate son of God, who had two flanking angels with him. I think this is the case because later in the passage two of the men depart for Sodom while Yahweh God stays behind to converse with Abraham. Additionally, uh, God visits His people in the tabernacle and temple above the mercy seat which is flanked by two angels on either side. Uh, Exodus 25, 21-22, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So you have this picture of God meeting in between these two angels in the tabernacle and the temple, between the two cherubim. Additionally, the risen Christ in the tomb, while absent, because he was risen, is flanked by two angels in John 20. Uh, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And this imagery is supposed to invoke the imagery of the temple and the mercy seat, which in turn, I think, is evoking imagery of the visitors to Abraham. Abraham. Um, So I think uh, a Christophany is uh, is fitting, and I think it's more likely the case, uh, a Christophany with two accompanying uh, angels. So Abraham, uh, he sees the Lord, he sees these three men, and he runs from his tent door to meet him, and he bows down before him, and he asks if he can bless him with hospitality, to give the Lord a place to rest, to be refreshed, To serve him, to wash his feet. Abraham says, if I have now found favor in your sight, let me serve you in this way. We see that Abraham considers hospitality and service to the Lord a privilege. If I have found favor in your sight, let me do this for you. In verse 5, Abraham says he is going to bring them out a little water and a morsel of bread. A morsel just being a small piece of bread. But Abraham then uh, has Sarah and a servant prepare a feast for the Lord. Steaks and bread rolls and butter and milk. Uh, So he goes all out. He goes way over the top. Uh, What he initially offers is this modest offering, um, but then he gives the Lord way more than what his modest offering um, suggested. And God does a similar thing, I think, with Abraham. I will give you a morsel of land. I will give you Canaan. Uh, but then, what does the Lord do? He turns around and he gives him the whole earth, uh, and not only the whole earth, but ultimately a redeemed and glorified heaven on earth in the eschaton, when uh, the heavenly Jerusalem is fully manifested, and the Lord has exercised His judgment on the earth, and uh, we have that final feast with Him. So we see a kind of uh, there's a reciprocal overabundance of blessing with one another at play here between the Lord and between Abraham, and this is what life and fellowship with the Lord is like. Uh, and it's what we ought to emulate in our own lives. And how do we do this? Well, there's a lot of practical ways of doing this, um, but what I want to zero in on is hospitality to the saints. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to the house of Israel. And he tells them that persecution is coming, but that uh, those who receive the, his disciples with hospitality will be blessed. Uh, because when someone receives a messenger of God, it's as if they're receiving God himself. A pretty, it's a pretty insane statement to think about, but this is what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He says, "...he who receives you receives me." Receives Jesus, and he who receives me receives him who sent me, our heavenly Father. So he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones—notice that I'm going to be mentioning that a lot—these little ones, this he he uses a diminutive, calling his disciples little ones. Uh, Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. And so what we see here is that Christ says a man who blesses the messengers of God with hospitality receives a reward. Um, Speaking to his disciples in Mark 9, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so um, he's he, again he's reaffirming this uh, this reward aspect of those who receive messengers of God, because it's as if he's receiving God himself. Um, these ver yeah. So there's um, overabundance, welcoming and hospitality is a way of serving God, of ministering to God. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Uh, The Christian life is more than simply accepting Jesus into your heart. It's accepting the messengers of Jesus into your home and blessing them. And by doing so, you bless Jesus, you bless the Father. Uh, Here in our passage, Abraham gives a cup of water, literally, to the messengers of the Lord, to the Lord himself. Finally, this is not just a mere suggestion that if you decide to do it, you're going to get a reward. Uh, Jesus says, if you don't do this, I am going to send you to hell. (laughs) Which is weird because we don't think about this very often. We think about murderers and homosexuals and adulterers. But Jesus, far from Paul, Paul just says those kinds of people aren't going to inherit the kingdom. Which is, you can infer from that that they're going to be thrown into hell, which I think is true. But Jesus explicitly says, you don't care for my people. I'm going to throw you into the lake of fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a very positive statement of damnation for these kinds of people. In Matthew 25, and this is a passage that's often misapplied to the uh, poor in general. Um, But I don't think that that's what's primarily going on here. Uh, We are to care for the poor. Proverbs 16, I believe, says uh, he who lends to a poor man lends to the Lord. So there is a sense in which we do care for the poor, and by caring for the poor, we do care for the Lord. But I think what Jesus is talking about here is his disciples. Let's read this. It's It's a lengthy passage, but it's at the end of Matthew 25. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. The least of these. What does he call his disciples in those other passages? Little ones. And then he says, my brethren, what, who are his, in the gospel of Matthew, this is Matthew. Who does Jesus say his brethren are? The ones who do the will of his That's right. The ones who do the will of his father in heaven. That is my brother and my sister and my mother. Those are his brethren. That's his family, Matthew 12. And so we're not talking about the poor generally here. We're not talking about the lazy drunkard on the street who isn't willing to get a job. Yeah, we got to help those guys. That's not who Jesus is talking about here. At least that's not the primary, the primary thing that I think is going on here. And it hinges on that statement. The least of these, my brethren. Um, so uh, let's see here. He, go, he continues. Um, then he will also say to those on the left hand, uh, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Hospitality is the reason, is one of the reasons Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Uh, Liberals like to bring that up. Uh, Later, one of the prophets brings this up, that they were inhospitable to the messengers of God. And that's true. Liberals like to bring that up and say, "Eh, it wasn't about sodomy. It was about inhospitality. And then conservatives are like, no, it's only about, it's about both. It is about both. And Jesus puts a huge premium on hospitality to the messengers of God. Who are us? And so um, these are sobering realities. I mean, we just take the Bible at its word. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about people who are in hospital to the saints. So this serves as a very stern warning for these people. Um, and also, and yeah, lastly, what this is, what this, what this, what Jesus is carrying on here are the promises to Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis 12. What does does Yahweh, what does the Lord say to Abraham? He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And Jesus is simply carrying this out to what that looks like. Verse 6, Abraham tells Sarah to quickly make some bread using three measures of meal, or fine flour. Um this is kind of complicated but a measure is the same as a seah which you'll see in scripture a seah is 3 omers <laughs> an omer is the smallest unit of measurement we find in scripture of flour and 3 seahs or 3 measures in our passage is roughly the equivalent of an ephah which is about 10 omers um, so the loaves of bread in the tabernacle, the showbread um, in, the, in the holy place, they were made in Leviticus 24. They were made out of two omers of uh, flour. So three measures of flour would make around six to uh, uh, 11 uh, loaves of bread. I, by my calculation, six, but I've seen as high as 11. Um, So she's making a lot of bread. There's enough here to feed 50 to 100 people. Um, uh, This is also about three times as much as required by the Lord in Numbers 15. uh, this is, In Numbers 15, we see instructions uh, to offer bread and wine alongside the offering of bulls and rams. And interesting, interestingly enough, these offerings are the same for native Israelites and strangers living among them who want to sacrifice to the Lord, uh, which, of course, has a connection to Abraham being the father of the nations uh, and these sacrifices in Uh, numbers being associated with the strangers who are among them and the native Israelites. Um, So again, uh, we see in the passage there with the amount of the sheer amount of food served. It's an overabundance of offering and sacrifice to the Lord. Three measures of flour is what Gideon offered to the angel of Yahweh in Judges 6. Uh, before he tears down the idolatrous Baal and Asherah poles and his family and his local church. Hannah is a barren woman uh, in 1 in Samuel. She's a barren woman like Sarah, and she also has a fertile rival, um, a, a woman who also provokes her because of her infertility. And uh, But when she gives birth to Samuel, she also offers the Lord the same amount of bread as Sarah, um, along with a bull, wine, and in a sense, like Isaac, Samuel himself, as she dedicates him to the the tabernacle to service to God. Uh, We also see that God gives commands uh, to offer this much as a grain offering in the restoration of the temple and land in Ezekiel 45, uh, which, um, which is a uh, it's an interesting phase in in the prophets that I'm still not totally sure if that's about the restoration coming out of captivity or if there's something about uh, something about the spiritual restoration of the land and the new covenant. But either way, this amount is is prescribed in Ezekiel 45. And lastly, we see that this amount of meal is mentioned, Uh, by Jesus in one of his parables in Matthew 13 he says another parable he spoke to them the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened well everyone know everybody knows well Sarah she offered, she does three three measures of meal Uh, so it's it's clearly a reference to Sarah and it's preparing a meal for the Lord and the leaven we're not in our passage the leaven isn't mentioned but um, he said, God, Jesus says the kingdom's like leaven in bread. It, like a woman who took uh, three measures uh, of meal uh, till it was all leavened. Some commentators and pastors uh, of a particular stripe, of a very popular stripe, uh, who are obsessed with our downfall and the, the spreading corruption of sin in the world, have taken this parable of Jesus to mean that the kingdom will be leavened with corruption until Jesus comes back again. Um, And the reason why they do this is because leaven is often associated with sin in Scripture, but it's not always associated with sin in Scripture. Luke 12, uh, Jesus warns the people, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Okay, leaven bad. Uh, Paul talks about excommunicating a defiant sinner. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a a new lump as you really are unleavened, 1 Corinthians 5. Um, But you see it used in other terms too. In Romans 11, this is more... Uh, It's not as clear, but Paul says that if God began his church with a holy beginning uh, among the Jews, the outgrowth of that is also going to be holy. He says in 1116, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Um, in Leviticus 7.13, after the atonement blood offerings were given, uh, the peace and thanksgiving sacrifices were given as leavened bread offerings. So we see that leaven, God does accept leaven as far as sacrifices go. And here, I think that the leaven of the kingdom that Jesus talks about is a reference to holy growth of the kingdom as it follows a parable of the kingdom being compared to a mustard seed that grows into a large tree. Um, Likewise, when leaven is introduced into a loaf, it causes the loaf to grow, just like the tree. And it's also something diminutive. (laughs) It's something small. A mustard seed, a little bit of leaven. And you introduce it, you introduce the mustard seed into the ground, it grows. You introduce leaven into the loaf, it grows. And with the loaf, interestingly enough, it grows by fire. Right? You have to make it hot. So you've got the fire of the Holy Spirit growing it. And what happens is the um when when that fire uh is introduced, the leaven releases carbon dioxide into the loaf and it creates these pockets of air in the loaf, and that's what causes it to rise. So it's releasing air, breath, wind, spirit. It's cause the spirit's causing it to grow. Um, So you have fire and air, the spirit. And this isn't about, uh, so I don't think it's about inevitable corruption and sin in the church and the antichrist and chips in our forearms and stuff. But I think it's about positive growth. Um, This parable invites us to see the spirit's work in the kingdom, uh, creating little pockets of air in the whole loaf where the spirit expands and it grows and it gives form to the kingdom. It's a parable of God's promise to Abraham of filling the loaf of the earth with nations who love Abraham's God, who are Abraham's children by faith in Jesus. And so we also see that God loves to work with small beginnings. Remember the way that he refers to his disciples, the diminutive, little ones, the least of these and the, the little ones, uh, these, the, the least of these went out from Judah, from Judea uh, to Samaria and then the rest of the world. And they, they were bringing the leaven of the gospel to the world, transforming it, bringing the spirit to pagans and idolaters, causing them to repent and growing the kingdom from a mustard seed to a tree, from a little leaven to a whole loaf. So. I think we can take away from this, don't despise the day of small beginnings, as Zechariah tells us. Don't despise these small meetings with the Lord. Abraham and Sarah meeting with the Lord in a foreign land, in a tent somewhere in Palestine, in the wilderness. Uh, Us few here meeting with the Lord in this tiny room, this tiny tent uh, in a foreign land, in a sense run by Canaanites. Uh, These are small beginnings, but uh, the Lord loves to grow and transform them. And that's what the leaven parable teaches us. Uh, The kingdom of God is like a little leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures, like what Sarah does here. Lastly, in verse 16, the men look towards Sodom. And in verse 22, two of them go to Sodom and they they're going as their mediatorial angels of judgment Um, and in the next chapter we'll see this unfold further but in our passage here we are told that the men went to Sodom in verse 22 but that Abraham stayed Uh, to converse with Yahweh. So so I think one of the men is back conversing with uh, Abraham. I think it's a Christophany. In verse 17, the Lord discloses his secret, his plan to judge Sodom uh, to Abraham because Abraham is in relationship with God. He's the elect of God, a servant. And when you're in relationship with God, God discloses his plans to you. He speaks to you. Amos says, uh, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Amos 3, 7. And notice the purpose of God's knowing of Abraham in verse 19. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So notice that Abraham is required to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken. So there are obligations placed on Abraham toward his household, even in the midst of the promises that God. He says, do these things so I can bring these promises to you. So there there are obligations. There are conditions to the covenant as well as unilateral promises. So after the Lord intimates his plans for Sodom, Abraham, what does he do? He draws near to God as a mediator, as an advocate for the righteous, just like Christ, as our advocate. In 1 John 2, my little children, notice the diminutive, least of these little ones, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. In verse 23, Abraham is acting as this advocate for the righteous. He says, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham then he starts putting forward these numbers. He starts at 50 and he works all the way down till 10. And, um, and God says that he will. He says, I will spare this city if there are 10 righteous men. And this again, we've seen this before with Abraham rescuing uh, Lot that the righteous have a preserving nature in the world, even over the wicked, um, which is certainly gracious because they don't deserve it. But the righteous act as the salt of the earth. They kind of preserve um, uh, judgments of God. They, They act as a shield in a way, at least in a temporal sense. But also notice the manner in which Abraham is petitioning God. He is constantly affirming his lowly state. It's not this casual, easy breezy, Jesus is my buddy kind of thing. He is is filled with Reverence and fear. He is approaching God with humility. What does he say? He says, "I'm only dust and ashes. Let not the Lord be angry. I have taken upon myself to speak with Yahweh." He's humbling himself. He knows he's being bold. He doesn't want to provoke the Lord to anger. Um, and and I, we need that. We need a healthy dose of that humility before the Lord uh, when we are petitioning Him, rather than Jesus just dot, dot, dot. Just this casual, easy breezy. We need that reverence instilled into us. We need to look to Abraham in these things. James, drawing from the wisdom literature of Scripture, he says, the Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Abraham is acting as a mediator in humility here. So the Lord affirms he will spare the city for the sake of ten. And as we will see in the next chapter, uh, the Lord does not destroy the righteous with the wicked, but he does bring them out in an exodus. He provides the righteous with a way of escape. He grants his holy ones, his little ones, the least of these, the little children, salvation from the coming judgments. And so we can turn Abraham's interrogative, will not the judge of all the earth do right, into a declarative The judge of all the earth will do what is right. He is a just judge and a gracious judge, saving the repentant and righteous from judgment through the faith of Abraham in the miracle child, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. The charge is this, serve the Lord. Serve him by serving the little ones of Yahweh, by serving his ministers. By doing so, you receive the one who sent them, The Christ, and by receiving the Christ, you receive the one who sent him, our Father in heaven. Be known for your hospitality toward the saints. Be a place of feasting for them. Keep the thoughts of your heart free from unbelieving laughter. Instead, laugh in the joy of the promised miracle child, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let the leaven of the kingdom permeate the secret recesses of your heart. And to borrow an analogy from another minister, be faithful in the little pockets of air in the loaf of the kingdom that the Lord has you in. Walk in the spirit there. Fill your tiny air pocket of the kingdom with holiness and service to the Lord. And lastly, carry out the faith of Abraham by commanding your household in the ways of the Lord. Do righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to you little child of Abraham, everything he promised Abraham. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, and amen.